0: We're thankful to have uh, Dakota here today, and his wife Laura is with her. And uh, I kind of have to snicker a little bit when I think about them, because um, some of you remember Jim Wojcik was here, and then they, they worked with him. and. Jim and I used to teach Sunday school together, and so we got to know each other a little bit, and he would tell me about this guy that was working in the ministry there and how he was trying to get these two together, but it didn't seem like it was happening. Well, um, (laughs) then I was talking to Dakota and Laura one time at a Scripture Memory open house, and they said, well, yeah, it was happening. We just didn't want him to know about it. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) and so uh, they got together. Their uh, husband and wife have been for several years now, and, uh, and we're thankful for their ministry there at Scripture Memory, and we look forward to what Dakota has for us today. Good morning. It's good to be back here at Terrell Bible Church. It's always good when they invite you to come back. <laughs> Looking forward to our time together this morning and as I shared last time I was here, this is a church that just has a special place in my heart because even though I haven't been here too many times, this is a church that has shaped so many of the people who have shaped me over the years and so it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. The last time I was here, probably 3 or 4 weeks ago, Uh, We looked at Psalm 119 together and we specifically looked at verses 92 and 93 and we just considered together what does it mean to delight in God's Word and we looked at three components of that. We delight in God's Word by knowing what it says, by meditating on what it says, and then by doing what it says. And then this morning uh, I wanted to share with you one of the passages that I've been delighting in lately just as it's been on my heart really. Over the last one or two years, I've spent a whole lot of time in 1 Peter, and so I was uh, thankful for the opportunity to come back and share that with you this morning. And the title of our message this morning is, In This You Rejoice. In This You Rejoice. And if you got one of the bulletins when you came in this morning, you'll see on the back there's an outline of this message with some blanks that you can fill in as we go along. And you'll see what those blanks are uh, on the slides from time to time. But why don't we start by looking together at 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 12. And I'll be reading in the ESV. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And we'll stop reading there, and let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, through your word, you've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And Lord, this morning, we're especially thankful for these words from First Peter. And we see that there is so much in this passage of Scripture for us to take in. But Lord, we trust that your Holy Spirit will open the eyes of our understanding to behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, I pray that you would guide my words this morning and that you would guide our hearts to Receive what you would have for us from these words. And we pray now in Jesus' name, amen. As I was visiting a few days ago with uh, David Carmen, he said, so what passage will you be sharing with us? And I said, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 12. And his eyes got wide. He said, that's, that's a lot. And it is. Uh, this is quite a passage of scripture. And you might be saying, how are we supposed to get through all of this? Well, we won't. Uh, we won't be able to harvest all that, that this passage has for us, and yet I wanted to share just some of the highlights, some of the main themes that we can be impacted by in this passage of Scripture. So, as we just kind of survey the landscape of 1 Peter, one of the things that is interesting to me is that this is written, of course, by Peter, uh, but towards the end of his life. Peter is one of my favorite biblical characters. And it just strikes me that th- these words that we're reading are some of the last words that he, that he ever wrote. And so this is uh, kind of his farewell letter, you might say. And uh, this was written in about 62 or 63 A.D. And he's writing, we see this in verses 1 and 2, to these elect exiles of the dispersion. And I have a map that I'd like to show you uh, that highlights where these believers were located. He says, To those who are elect exiles in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Well, you'll see Pontus right up at 12 o'clock on the map there. And then we just go clockwise. So the deliverer, the, the courier of this letter would start in Pontus and then continue to Galatia and then Cappadocia before passing back through Galatia to Asia and then finally ending up there in Bithynia. And so this was a letter that was intended to be distributed among these various churches in modern day Turkey. And Peter is writing in response to the fact that the believers in this area were facing increased persecution for their faith. And we see that is uh, something he highlights very early on in the letter. He's writing uh, in response to the fact that they're suffering as believers. And so I started to dig into that type of persecution and ask myself, well, what what were they suffering? Was this some sort of state-sponsored persecution? And most of the commentaries said, no, they weren't being persecuted by the government, but it was increasingly difficult to live the Christian life in this part of the world. One um, theologian, Howard Marshall, said it this way, what Christians had to fear was more in the nature of social ostracism, unfriendly acts by neighbors, pressure on Christian wives from pagan husbands, masters taking it out on Christian slaves and other actions of that kind. It was sufficient, in any case, to make life uncomfortable. And it was known that Christians elsewhere had suffered imprisonment and even death for their faith. This is noteworthy because when I read these words, it occurs to me that Peter's audience and the American church have a lot in common, don't we? It's not illegal to be a Christian. We can serve the Lord freely and gather like this, and yet we live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to our faith. We live in a world where the costs of following Jesus are getting higher every day. And uh, we, we see that in other parts of the world, those costs are even greater. Notice the last part of this quote. These believers realized that in other parts of the world, believers were suffering in the form of, of uh, being put to death in some cases, and we see that as well. We live in a country where following Jesus is increasingly costly and we see that our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world have it even worse. And so I think this is important for us to recognize because as we get into 1 Peter, this letter is really addressed to us in a pretty unique way because we have that same common denominator with Peter's original audience. We live in a world, in a country, in a culture where following Jesus is costly. It's also noteworthy, I think, that Peter is writing primarily to a Gentile audience. He's writing to these elect exiles. That's a term that you encounter throughout this book of 1 Peter. They are exiles, pilgrims, strangers in the land. And I love this quote. Someone says, believers are exiles not because they are displaced from their homeland, but believers are exiles because they suffer for their faith in a world that finds their faith off-putting and strange that's why he's calling them exiles because they are following Jesus and doing so puts them at odds with the world around them they live in a world that does not understand the life that they're living the God that they're following and the gospel that they have believed now, I want, I want to take a moment and just highlight the fact, once again, that Peter was writing to Gentiles, because that'll be very important here in a few minutes as we get deeper into the passage. And what strikes me is that throughout the letter, Peter uses some stunning language when you consider that this was a Gentile audience. If you have your Bible still open, turn the page to chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and let's read verses 9 and 10. Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just think about how big of a deal it is for Peter, a Jew, to be writing to Gentiles and saying things like, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That sounds stunning for a Jew who grew up recognizing that the Jewish people exclusively were the people of God. And now he's writing to these scattered Gentile believers saying, you're a chosen race and a royal priesthood. And he, he acknowledges the fact that that was not always the case. Right there in verse 10 when he says, once you were not And I was thinking about this. Again, this is towards the end of Peter's life, but we remember that a few years prior, in Acts chapter 10, he had a life-changing experience where God was preparing him to meet Cornelius, and he was up on the rooftop, and he had a vision, didn't he? And that vision featured this, this large sheet coming down from heaven. There were all sorts of animals, and God said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God said, what I have cleansed, don't call unclean. And it seems very clear to me by the time we get to 1 Peter that that he had taken that lesson to heart. And he has now gone so far as to call these, these Gentile brothers and sisters fellow members of this chosen race and royal priesthood. Now you might read this and say, well, are we absolutely sure that he was writing to Gentiles? Because this language almost seems to suggest the opposite. And I have one more quote. This is a longer one, but I think it's helpful that I'd like to share with you. This is from Thomas Schreiner. He says, Some in the history of scholarship, noting this this emphasis on the Old Testament, conclude that their readers were Jewish. Today, however, most scholars agree that their readers were mainly Gentiles. The evidence in support of this conclusion is quite compelling to say that they lived in ignorance, suggests an idolatrous and pagan past. Even more telling is the claim that they had been redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to them from their forefathers. Peter would scarcely say that Jewish forefathers lived vainly since the Jews were God's elect people. The Gentile origin of the readers seems clear from chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. It's difficult to believe that Peter would characterize Jews as indulging in such blatant sins whereas the vices were typical of the Jewish conception of Gentiles. So again, Peter's writing to Gentiles and when you take in all five chapters of 1 Peter, that seems very clear and yet he does not regard them as, as second class believers but he considers them brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so we have a couple of things in common with Peter's audience. One, we're facing the same sort of social pressure and persecution that they were facing. And, of course, uh, we also are Gentiles. And so we, we also should take a moment and consider Peter is identifying them as fellow members of this chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. But hasn't persecution and hardship followed God's people through the ages and so he's, he's welcoming them into this, into this family of God, and yet he's also responding to the fact that they now participate in that same persecution and peril that has followed God's people through the ages. So that sets the stage for this book of 1 Peter, and I'd like to take a moment now and look at the first few verses. Let's look at verses 3 through 5 together, and this is under the heading Saved and Preserved. And let's take a look at those verses again. One of the things that stands out to me just in the first five verses of this chapter is how active God the Father is in these few verses. We see God doing three things specifically. Notice in verse 2 he says, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We talked about that a little bit this morning in Sunday School. I stopped in my study and I focused for a moment on that word foreknowledge and I thought it was very interesting. It comes from a Greek word that you're probably familiar with, the word prognosis. And that word prognosis is used only one other time in the New Testament and it's a familiar passage, Acts 2.23, where Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of God of lawless men. So once again that word prognosis or foreknowledge and the reason I'm cross referencing there with Acts 2 is that it gives us some insight into what type of foreknowledge this is. This is not God simply having an awareness of things that will soon transpire. When I check the weather forecast I gain some insight into what tomorrow's weather is going to be but I don't have any control over that. Sometimes I wish I did. And yet this word prognosis makes it clear that God is in control of these events and so we see the first thing God is doing here is he's electing these believers he has elected them they have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to quote another passage and so God it says has chosen them they are elect according to God's foreknowledge and I think that must have been such a comfort to Peter's audience. Think of it this way. They're living in a world where they are being singled out for their faith. They're being singled out in a way that is to their detriment in this life, and yet Peter is reminding them that even more than they have been singled out by their neighbors, by their co-workers, by the people around them, they have been singled out by God as the objects of His love and of His redemption. So that's the first thing we see God doing in this passage, calling these believers to himself and then notice in verse 3 the next thing that God is doing it says he has caused us to be born again to a living hope we understand pretty intuitively that when God has elected them according to his foreknowledge that's not something that they can take any credit for right that happened before they existed and in the very same way uh, they don't get to take any credit for the fact that they've been born again because Peter says God the father has caused us to be born again to this living hope. That reminds me of John 6, verse 63, where Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So he says, You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God has caused you to be born again. And then notice the next thing that we see God doing. This is in verse 5. It says, It is by God's power that we are being guarded through faith For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We see God at work in the past in that they were elect according to his foreknowledge. We see God at work in the present in that he has caused them to be born again. And we see God at work ongoingly and into the future when it says by God's power they are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This echoes the words of Jesus who said, no one can pluck you out of my father's hand. It echoes the words of Job who said, no purpose of God's can be thwarted. It echoes the words of Paul who said, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And here Peter is putting that same thing into his own words when he says, by God's power, you're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. In the last time. So Peter opens this letter so powerfully, and this is the summary that we see that Peter is reminding them they were chosen in the past, redeemed in the present, and preserved for the future. What an encouragement this must have been. I don't know about you, but I think sometimes we struggle to trust God for the future. We can look back on our lives and see his fingerprints all over it. We, we understand that what Peter's saying is true, that yes, he, he called us to himself. We're elect according to his foreknowledge. We, we see that he's been at work throughout the pages of our lives, and yet somehow and for some reason we might have a little bit of concern about what the next chapter will, will feature. Will God continue to be faithful? And Peter is answering all of those concerns very clearly when he says you're being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed. In the last time, So Peter is acknowledging the fact that these believers are not at home in the world that they find themselves in. They are exiles, they are pilgrims, they are strangers, but they belong to God the Father irrevocably. So that's how Peter opens this letter. Let's take a look now at uh, the next few verses, verses 6 through 9. And we'll look at this under the heading, Grieved by Various Trials. Can't we all relate to that? Grieved by various trials. And let's read verses 6 through 9 again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor At the revelation of Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice the the opener to this to this section there in verse six. He says, In this you rejoice. What is it that these believers are rejoicing in? Are they rejoicing in the fact that they're being persecuted? Are they rejoicing in the fact that life is increasingly difficult? No, they're rejoicing in everything that we just saw in the first five verses of this passage. They're rejoicing in the fact that God knew them in their mother's womb, that he elected them according to his foreknowledge. They're rejoicing in the fact that God has caused them to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Christ. They're rejoicing in the fact that by his power, he is guarding them through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what they're rejoicing in, and they are not rejoicing in their trials necessarily, but they are rejoicing in spite of their trials. Because something bigger is in front of them, and that is their salvation And in that sense, the gospel puts earthly suffering in perspective. That's the next thing that you'll find in your notes. The gospel puts earthly suffering in perspective. And I think that's uh, so noteworthy because Peter does not begin this letter by saying, you know, things aren't as bad as they seem. Just look on the bright side. It could be worse. Believers over here where I live have it even harder. So just be encouraged by the fact that, You know, it'll be all right. He doesn't diminish their suffering, but he seeks to take their eyes off of it for a second and to remind them of the fact that God has saved them and called them to himself. He doesn't ask them to forget about their suffering, but he instead reminds them of something bigger. Notice in verse 6, he says, "...though now for a little while..." If necessary, we've been grieved by various trials. That phrase, for a little while, I think highlights what happens when we shift our attention from from the challenges of this life and we focus instead on the gospel. Again, it puts our suffering in perspective. And we remember that our suffering is but for a little while. If you've read the book of James, you'll remember that very uh, helpful illustration when he says, our life is but a vapor, If life is a vapor, then what does that say about the suffering that we might experience for a period of time within that vapor? It is only temporary when we zoom out and we look at the big picture of eternity and the gospel that has um, impacted our lives and that has saved us. I don't know about you, but when I read that that verse, verse 6, it almost sounds like Peter is a little bit flippant about this suffering. He says, You know, uh, if necessary, for a little while, you've been grieved by various trials. It almost sounds like he's downplaying it, but it's not that he's downplaying their suffering, but their suffering is indeed insignificant when you compare it to the gospel. Peter isn't minimizing their trials, but he is magnifying the gospel, which teaches us that when we face trials, we can preach the gospel to ourselves. That's the next thing you'll find in your notes. When facing trials, preach the gospel to yourself. And we see that in 1 Peter. Someone, a friend of mine years ago gave me that advice. And you know, it has proven very helpful because sometimes when I get down in the mud of life and I'm facing trials of various kinds, I exhaust myself trying to look for a bright side and sometimes I can't find it, and I'm, and I'm looking for when will this turn around, and I'm not seeing if or when it will. And yet, when I open the Word of God and I, and I read verses like these that remind me of the gospel, when I, when I turn on a gospel sermon and just remind myself of God's eternal plan of redemption, my suffering doesn't go away, but suddenly it's less significant in my mind because I've, I've reminded myself that something bigger is uh, on display. So when facing the the trials of life, remind yourself of the beauty of the gospel. Peter also reminds them that their trials serve a divine purpose. That's in verse 7. Notice he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's asking them to to look up and see the beauty of the gospel, but he says, even, even when you do that, you can take heart in knowing that God is using that suffering to accomplish his divine purposes. What is that divine purpose? It's that our faith would be refined. Trials refine our faith and glorify God. Peter says that this produces something very special that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When I look back on some of the hardest times of my life, for example, when my my parents were divorced, you know, that was something I didn't ask for, that's something I didn't want, and it was hard. But I can look back and say, you know, God was at work in the midst of that, and he accomplished things that would not have been accomplished in my life If I hadn't gone through that trial, and I'm sure you have similar experiences, you might look back uh, five years ago, ten years ago, and you say, you know, that was not something I wanted, that sickness, that job loss, that relationship problem, whatever it was. But you can say, in hindsight, I'm glad that I went through those things because God was at work and my faith has been refined. The tested genuineness of my faith was occurring. And yet sometimes we wonder, is that going to be true again in the midst of this one? And yet we can have faith that, yes, God is at work. Trials refine our faith and ultimately glorify God. Let's look now at the next few verses. This is verses 10 through 12, and we can put these under the heading, A Long-Awaited Era. This is really, to me, one of the the highlights of 1 Peter through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You'll remember we, we just spent a few minutes talking about Peter's audience. Who were they? They were Gentile believers. And I said that would become important for us to remember here in a few minutes. Well, here we are. Peter is writing primarily to a Gentile audience And at this point, it seems like he just wants to camp out for a minute and make sure that they understand the significance of the fact that they are now the people of God, that they know the Messiah, that God's eternal plan of redemption has unfolded before their eyes, and they get to be part of that. Now, Peter was a Jew, and he spent many years of his life looking forward to that Wondering when the promise of Messiah would come to fruition. You know, in those days, uh, that, that was the thing that so many scholars would have spent all of their time studying, trying to make sense of Isaiah 53, trying to make sense of all of these prophecies. And for thousands of years, the people of God had looked forward in eager anticipation to when these things would happen. When would the Messiah come? How would the Messiah come? How will we recognize him? And Peter is saying... You are Gentiles, but you need to understand that we've been waiting for this for a very, very long time. He says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully. This is something that they were excited and looking forward to, and it's yours. An illustration that I'll share with you is that every morning when I get in my car and drive to work, I have the privilege, the challenge... trial of my faith, which is driving on 635, and I'm sure you've experienced that, and especially if you have have made your way over towards Garland, you'll see that they are doing all sorts of construction, and I remember about two or three years ago, they started that project, and I was still new enough to Texas that I didn't realize how long this was going to take. I thought, surely this will be a six-month ordeal, and then they'll open it back up and we'll be all set, and then around that time, Laura said... I'm reading online, this is like a four or five year thing, and my heart sank. And I'm starting to think, will I ever get this time back? All of the time that I'm waiting in traffic while these, these projects are ongoing, will will I ever make up for that because they've added a lane? I'm not sure that I will. And here's the thing that, that makes me a little bit frustrated. I know that in two or three years they're going to open 635. Everything's going to be beautiful. And on that very day, someone is going to move to Texas. And the next day, they're going to get in their car and they're going to drive to work and they'll enjoy all of the benefit of that construction. And they'll just think that's how it's always been. And they'll say, boy, I just got on that 635 uh, highway and it it went very smoothly. I'm going to say, don't you realize (laughs) we've been waiting for this for a long time? And I feel like Peter... Is is writing to these believers and he's saying, You guys are driving on a highway that a lot of people died waiting for. (laughs) You guys are experiencing something that we have looked forward to eagerly for generations. This is something that our scholars wrestled with for a long time, looking ahead in anticipation to the coming of the Messiah. And we want to make sure that you understand this is a big deal. This is a big deal. It's such a big deal. Notice there in verse 12 he says, this is something that angels long to look into. And so if, if Peter's readers were maybe prone to underestimating the significance of the gospel, I think we should make sure that we are on guard against that as well. What a blessing. We say, hey, we're living in a, in a trying time. This is a, a difficult time to follow Christ in some ways, and yet... What a, what a blessing, what a privilege it is that God has put us at such a time in history when we know the name of Jesus Christ, when we have seen his plan of salvation unfold. Let me invite you as well to take a look at Hebrews 11, verse 13. This is a passage of scripture that really speaks to what we've just talked about. And of course, this is right in the middle of what we call the Hall of Faith, where where the author of Hebrews is just walking through these great men and women of God and the faith that they had. And yet when we get to verse 13, it says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles, Notice that terminology. Doesn't that sound familiar? The author of Hebrews says, These men and women of God who died in faith, they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And that's the very same terminology that we're finding in 1 Peter when he says, You are elect exiles. So you have the blessing of having received the promise that Abraham and that Moses and all of these men of God looked forward to with great anticipation, and yet now you share in their identity as exiles, pilgrims, and strangers on the earth, which leads us to this next statement. Generations of believers died in faith of the promises that we have received. I think we should be thankful for that. The fact that God has allowed us to receive the promise that Abraham never saw What a blessing. Generations of believers died in faith of the promise we have received. Again, this is a long passage of scripture. You could spend the next two weeks uh, in these 12 verses and you would find a whole lot more than we've had time to consider together this morning. And yet I I wanna zoom out and just ask the question, what what is the, the takeaway? What is the one statement that would really summarize what we're learning from these first 12 verses. And I'd like to put this on the screen. Here's here's our takeaway. As beneficiaries of God's long-awaited plan of redemption, believers have a perennial source of inexpressible joy that cannot be extinguished by the trials of life. And we will face trials, won't we? I think it's very noteworthy that that's really one of the first things that Peter gets to in this letter. He he doesn't beat around the bush. He introduces himself, and he jumps right to the persecution that they're facing, and yet he talks about the joy that they experience in the context of that. They're rejoicing in spite of their trials based on the goodness and love of God that has revealed itself to them in the form of their redemption and salvation. Now... I want to take a moment and just point something out that, I, that I've realized in my own heart. When I face trials, I tend to look for a bright side within the context of this life. Now, Romans 8.28 is one that we often go to, isn't it? It says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. And that is a beautiful promise that we should hang on to in those trials of life. And yet, I think what that passage is talking about, especially if you look at all of Romans 8, is the same thing that Peter is talking about here, which is that God uh, uses these trials to refine our faith, glorify God in an eternal sense in view of the day of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. What happens, though, in my life is that I tend to look for an immediate turnaround. If you, you put in an application for a job and you don't get it, it's disappointing. And you might say, well, I think that maybe God has a better, higher-paying job for me around the corner. And that's Romans 8.28. Or when you put an offer in on a house and you're praying that it would be accepted, but it's not. You say, well, I'm going to hang on to Romans 8.28. Maybe, just maybe, God has a bigger, nicer house in store for me and I'll get it for even less. Or maybe the silver lining of my car breaking down is that in the near future I'll have an even better car that will work perfectly. And honestly, I don't think that's what Romans 8.28 is leading us to believe. And yet, isn't that how we often think, if we're honest? We say, I'm going through something, but maybe in two years or in three years, God will will turn these circumstances around, and I'll have an even better situation here in this life. But that's not what Peter is suggesting. I don't think that's what Paul is suggesting in Romans 8.28. Peter's readers are not rejoicing because they think that the persecution will soon stop. And it didn't. It actually got much worse. And soon there was state-sponsored persecution that they were facing. They're rejoicing because they know, by way of Peter's reminder, that no trial, however severe, can undo what God has done and the trial of their faith in this life will produce praise and glory and honor not next week necessarily but at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again I think we have a lot in common with Peter's readers. We find ourselves in a point of history where following Christ is not the popular thing to do. And I don't think that's going to change in the near future. In fact, I think like Peter's readers, we ought to recognize that the the temperature may even be turned up in our lifetimes. But the comfort we can take and the hope that we can find in these verses is that nothing can change, jeopardize, or threaten what God has done. In saving us, no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. According to God's foreknowledge, He caused us to be born again, and He's guarding us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I mentioned Romans 8. There is a passage of Scripture there that really speaks to these things, speaks to the fact that nothing that we face, none of the persecution, none of the hardship can jeopardize what God has done. We're familiar with this passage. It's Romans 8, 35 through 39. And I'd like to invite you to stand. And could we read this together as we conclude our time? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this reminder from your word. We're thankful that there is nothing in creation that can separate us from your love that you show to us and through Christ. Father, we know that there will be persecution the Lord Jesus Christ himself in this, Himself said in this world, you will have tribulation. And so we acknowledge that, and yet we thank you that our salvation is secure and that our hope in Christ is eternal. Father, would you cause us afresh to hope in these things, to rejoice in these things, though now for a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials. And yet we know that you will use those things to your ultimate glory and for the good of your people We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.